Welcome to Cup of Tea with the Vet. This is a fortnightly show pre-recorded live on social media. I started the show to help owners fall back in love with their vets and learn more about them as humans. We learn all about the vets' lives on this show and it's really fun and interesting. Enjoy the show. Hi everybody and welcome back to our next in our series of Cup of Tea with the Vet. Hello. Hi. Oh, that's There you go. We have got Rita Alitalo joining us today. Um, and you're going to notice an accent. She's Australian um, and she's super fun. So I'm looking forward to this chat. So Rita, can you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Rita. As uh, Donna said, I'm from Down Under. I graduated in 1996 from Perth, uh, Murdoch University in Western Australia. And I stayed in Oz for a few years and then I came over to Old Blighty and started locuming. And I've been back and forth from the UK uh, back to Australia a few times now. And now I'm here permanently. Uh, I've got four children here. My partner's here. We live in Buckinghamshire and uh, we're settled. I miss home a lot, but um, this is my second home. That's lovely. So what, um, you know, I mean, it's pretty cold here compared to Perth, isn't it? Perth, one of the hot ones. Yeah, it's really, really hot. It's a really dry heat. And uh, I miss the summers. I miss the beach. I miss that really outdoor lifestyle. But, you know, England's got so much to offer as well. It's so beautiful. The landscape, the greenery. Uh, it feels like I, I'm in a Jane Austen novel half the time. So in that oh, respect, yeah. um, I enjoy it. But gosh, that fair. Back, the pull back home is really, really strong and um, hoping to go back at Easter. I was going to say, yeah, the Buckinghamshire is the whole rolling fields thing, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, you have, have gorgeous, managed to... Gorgeous. Very chocolate box. Lots of mud. <laughs> yes, the mud I don't like so much, especially on the dogs. What made you decide to come over to the UK in the first place, though? You know, what, what was like, oh, let's go to England? Oh, a lot of Australian vets do it. It's a great opportunity to travel and our degrees recognised in all Commonwealth countries. And so it's really easy to get work. And uh, there's so many opportunities. And especially when I first came over in 2000, I mean, I literally, the first day I landed, I walked into a vet hospital and I just said, oh, are there any jobs going? And Sure enough, they said, yep, yeah, when do you want to start? That was nice. in Hampstead in London, yep, yeah, my first day here. And it kind of just went from there. And uh, it's it's vets are in demand. And um, I think Australian vets are quite popular. And uh, our degrees, we get really good education down under. And um, especially, I think, at my university, I'm going to give a plug for Murdoch, um, turns out really good, good graduates and... Uh, it's just easy to find work and and I think um, the animals obviously are quite similar in most ways. I think I've, I have struggled in some ways learning about some of the different species you have here, but overall veterinary medicine in Australia is very similar. So it's easy to make that transition apart from the weather. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I was going to say you guys are in high demand because you're always happy. I've never met a miserable Australian vet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we just like to have fun and uh, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And we, But obviously we take veterinary medicine very seriously, but at the same time we like to really enjoy our work and have that balance between uh, work and, and lifestyle, I think. 
Oh no, completely. I heard a really good joke once. It made me laugh. Um, it was about Australia. It's because of the Australian time zone and how Australians are always so chilled because ultimately they're 12 hours ahead. And so they're always like, well, you can't catch me up anyway, whatever. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, I guess we're pretty laid back. And I think in some t sometimes that, that helps us and other times it might hinder us. Uh, but uh, it, oh, it's it, it makes it, I think it makes us adaptable and uh, we just get on with the job and try not to take life too seriously. I think that is a very, very sensible thing. And I've had a few people on here talking about mental well-being. And I have to say that, you know, you've got that nailed then, haven't you? So I, I also want to touch on the um, the different species thing, because you said, obviously, different species. What have we got here? Because I just assume we're fairly... You just assume what you've got is normal. I guess you just think a kangaroo's normal, don't you? <laughs> well, exactly. I would get, you know, when you're on call, you get calls to for injured roos on the road when they get hit by cars, which is really common, uh, and wildlife's being born all the time. But the wildlife here is quite different, but also your domestic pets, I realised, are quite different. And I had no clue. I was completely naive when I moved over here for the first time. And I remember in my first job at that practice in London, they sent me on a house call and I remember the nurse saying to me, are you are you okay with chinchillas? And I said, I just went, well, yeah, I just assumed, yeah, fluffy white cats. I'm, I'm pretty good with that. <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> Was there that the really first time you'd seen a chinchilla? Yeah, I, I had no idea what it was. I'd never seen one in my life. And I, it's so that's so funny. I just I just assumed that those because it's an imported pet for us too. Do you know what I mean? It's not like it's native. Native, here. exactly. Oh, I just would have assumed that. No, they don't seen... exist in Australia. Hamsters, gerbils. Um, no, they're just not there. So it was oh, wow. uh, baptism of fire in some ways, and I had to learn really, really quickly and. Uh, hit the ground running in that respect and do then a lot of research because I just wasn't prepared. But, I mean, that case luckily worked out really well because it turns out the lady wanted me mostly there to have a cup of tea and a piece of cake. Um, I think she was just a little bit lonely, bless her, but she'd converted her whole uh, loft or attic into a chinchilla sanctuary and it oh. wasn't just one. There was literally like about 20 or 30 of them. So oh, it was wow. quite overwhelming for me, but... Um, I learnt, yeah, to, to get on board with your exotic species. That was definitely thrown in the deep end. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but the bless of the nurse when she told me, I think she just assumed that I knew. But, yeah, I mean, that partly that was my fault. I just didn't know. No, I didn't no. Know. Understand. But the thing is, when you haven't travelled and worked somewhere else, you don't think like like I'm wowing at it now, you know, because you just you just assume that, I don't know, that every everywhere has those same domestic pets you know like the wildlife totally understand that's completely off the wall um, yeah. and I would I would assume there were some differences in diseases contracted and stuff but I wouldn't like I don't know I just thought everybody had hamsters <laughs> just no I mean I guess they just get eaten by the wildlife in Australia but I, I think Australia is very strict with quarantine and disease control and uh yeah maybe it's for that reason we just don't have them but uh no, nope. it's no bad thing. It's no bad thing at all. I mean, I think it's quite healthy at the end of the day. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, right that every child has a hamster, but that's just how it we seems, end up here. So yeah, um, it seems to be a child's first pet over here. Uh, absolutely. And yeah. I learned about hamsters and gerbils as well after getting bitten by so many of them. I, everyone's like, oh, they're so friendly. They're so cute. Uh, not always. <laughs> 
No, I always, I mean, I did grow up having um, hamsters and gerbils, um, but I've always said guinea pigs, they're the cutest. Um, so I do, I do really like guinea pigs. I don't have any, um, but I do really like guinea pigs. They're definitely um, very compliant little pets. Oh, they're gorgeous little things. I mean, that's one of the first animals because when I was in nursery school or kindergarten, we call in Australia, our, our kindy had a, a whole hutch full of guinea pigs and you got to take them home. And the night that I got to take them home, they gave birth and they had baby guinea pigs at our house. And I was probably, what, only four or five. And uh, then we used to be able to bring our pets to kindergarten and show them. We'd have pet days and we had a sheep running around our kindergarten. It was very relaxed and open and outside and with nature and that really cemented uh, my decision to become a vet even from that age and I remember telling my kindy teacher when I was four or five that I was going to be a vet and here I am wow. <laughs> still a vet 25 that's, years later. That's really lovely and I, mm. I've now got images in my head of you just thinking that's what happens to guinea pigs every night that they like <laughs> pop little babies out like gremlins. Or they, they do breed Breed, you know, pretty uh, crazily, but uh, do. Um, I mean, so just, what were the chances of that? You know, the night you take the guinea pig home, a load more come out, and you know, you go back I mean, to school. Yeah, I was so proud to take them in, uh, but then they had no idea that the guinea pig was even pregnant. So exactly, they must have been like everyone. This child is all of a sudden making our guinea pig multiply. What? <laughs> or they might have thought you were trying to palm the school off with a whole load of babies that you didn't, you didn't want. But no, I didn't get to keep any of them, but I did have loads of other pets at home. So I was lucky. My parents indulged me and, and let me pursue my pet passion from a very young age. You know, in, in Australia, a lot of people live in a quarter acre block, quarter acre block, so you've got lots of space. And uh, so I had dogs and cats and rabbits and birds. And yeah, uh, we used to go horse riding and my parents used to really um, encourage me to pursue pursue my love for animals, which which I'm really grateful for. That's really lovely. That's really lovely. So I was going to ask, um, you know, what do you like to do in your spare time? Obviously, with four kids, I don't suppose you have a lot. <laughs> Not a lot of spare time, but I just really like walking out in nature. Uh, my parents are from Finland, and when we when they moved to Australia, they really loved the bush and the outdoor lifestyle. Uh, always in nature, so I grew up in nature uh, from a very young age. Always walking in the bush. And I do that over here now, just walking in the forest, the woods. I love that with the dogs and the kids. So I'm always always out with the dogs, and it's a good opportunity to get the kids out as well. So we're always outside, even in the rubbish weather. You just have to, for the dog's sake, but also for our, your own mental health and just getting out. I really think that's really important for children to be uh, physically active. So we're always out and about. Uh, we do a lot of baking together. Uh, I like... Uh, I got a Peloton bike not that long ago, and I love going on the bike. Uh, that's my my time, my and my personal exercise, uh, and just music. I love seventies and eighties music. I love dancing. Uh, I just love jiving around the kitchen with the kids and just just relaxing and unwinding in that way. Oh, that's lovely. That's really that's a nice healthy broad spectrum of everything, and of course <laughs> taking in the the beautiful Buckingham 
landscape of course that's a really lovely thing to do so yeah, yeah that's really good yeah. so obviously you've already told us why you decided to be a vet so obviously you've already nailed that mm -hmm. one I mean how lucky were you going to school where they would embrace that much farmyardery at your at your school I mean I always think oh, I'd be lovely to take a, a sheep down to the school and stuff but I don't think they'd appreciate oh, I think it was different times back then back in the 70s and 80s it was uh and maybe especially in Australia very relaxed and laid back and I think with health and safety these days it just wouldn't be allowed but I've just got such fantastic memories of of playing with a sheep you know at school and uh at fates and fairs with the school pony rides camel rides uh people would bring their dogs I mean it was just uh really uh animal orientated and nature orientated outdoor orientated upbringing which which really stood me in great stead for for, for life as an adult, I think, you know, embracing nature, embracing animals and including them as part of your family, really, and your everyday well, life. Completely, completely. That that story about the including them as part of your family um, always reminds me of, uh, always just reminding me of, like, my, my growing up sounds pretty, uh, I don't want to say similar, it doesn't sound that similar, but there are a few stories that definitely what you've said made me resonate in my head because um, my uncle was a farmer and um, if my aunt's listening to this, she'll just be laughing her head off. Um, but so he had a sheep um, farm and the where the house was, the sheep field was out the back of the house and they would just leave the back door open all the time. And then the Some sheep would come, would come in. in. Is, not one sheep, because obviously they're sheep. So what does they have? They all come in. <laughs> all oh, come of course, in the whole flock. Yeah, the whole mob. Exactly. Yeah. And you'd oh, be like sat having your Sunday dinner and there wasn't enough chairs for everybody and they didn't have a dining table. So the parents and the adults were all on the sofas and then me and my sister were always on the floor. And then also there'd be these sheep around us. We're trying to eat our roast. And I mean, that's a bit ironic, really. But, <laughs> but oh, um, fantastic. I, mean, I know. I mean, background. Definitely. And I mean, my... so... Sorry, come no, on. I was just going to say my maternal grandparents were farmers and I think that with my mother anyway, uh, enabled her to really have um, a natural affinity with animals and it was just part of everyday life. So it was natural for, for us to have animals always around. And I think if you've grown up with animals, it just just it just becomes natural and normal. It's, and it's abnormal not to have animals around. Completely. I completely agree. I completely agree. I'm just, I'm going to say my, um, my other sheep story from that. Cause it's just, honestly, my head's just gone ding, 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 remembering all these memories. Um, and, uh, the, the other sheep story, which I will never forget because there's photos of this and my uncle and aunt take great pleasure in laughing about them immensely. Um, because he, he was a proper old school gruff, imagine a proper West country farmer, you know, really like, you're going to do stuff as I say so. Same Harriet style proper like that really yeah. and truly and he sent me out I was probably about eight maybe ten at best so tiny with this bag big sack of sheep nuts I had to go and feed them now the sack's about as high as me that's how yeah. they're big sacks and I, it's not full and but that's how much did he carry that yeah, I was. It wasn't completely full, but he he knew this was hilarious. He's setting me up for a fall. He thought this was hilarious. I didn't know he thought this was hilarious. I thought this was totally serious. He sent me out into the field, and I had to go and fill up the troughs. And he said, "Whatever you do, don't let them put their heads in the bag. Don't let them put their heads in the bag." He knew what was going to go yeah. on. Yeah, no, you were so, been overwhelmed with fifty heads trying to get into a bag. 
that's exactly what happened. They were all putting their heads in. I was trying to pour it where it needed to go. They had their heads in the sack. And there's photos of me just getting lower and lower and lower. And last one, all you can see is this red back of my tracksuit hiding in amongst all the sheep as this big flock around me. And he's literally wetting himself laughing. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I, I have such fond memories of what you're saying with family and, you know, sheep and growing up in that way. And it just becomes part of your life, your family and your love and definitely was part of his practical jokes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh, well, that's family bonding, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> At its sure. very best. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm never going to live that down ever, but uh, but I don't want to either because it's always quite funny. So, uh, yeah, great memories, great memories. So um, what's your favourite part of being a vet? I think it's um, just establishing a bond between uh, yourself and the owner and and then obviously the, the pet and the animal. So there's three, you know, three or four people involved and it's trying to... Uh, get that communication and that openness and that trust because uh, I think that's really, really important. And then uh, figuring out problems, problem solving, uh, the satisfaction of fixing, working out what's wrong because they can't talk, they can't tell us, um, and working with the owner because they're the link between the animal and, and us as vets. And if we can't communicate with the owner, it's it makes it so much harder and because obviously these, these less than these poor animals can't tell us what's wrong so we need to work so closely with them and I think that really creates a closeness and a connection and and I love animals but I also really like people so for me that's been uh, a highlight because uh, there was a time in my veterinary career where I thought I would change to human medicine because I love medicine I love science and I love people um, but I think with veterinary medicine, you've got that connection with the animals and the people, and that's the ultimate, really. So, uh, I stuck with I stuck with veterinary medicine. Well done. So, when were you planning on the the human medicine side? Was that when it was at school and you were making decisions, or is that no, no, no? It was later on. It was uh, before we moved over here uh, again. For the, whatever time that an extra that extra time it was we moved back and forth a few times but this was going to be a permanent move but before we made that decision to move back permanently here I I had looked into it and I'd applied to medical school and done the appropriate test to get in uh and then we ended up moving here so that never happened but uh it's one of those things I always wonder what if but I'm I'm glad I'm still a vet yeah, I think those what ifs they they do they creep in, don't they? But um, you know, it's okay to explore it as long as you don't regret yeah, it. Yeah, it was just it was just an idea, and I was just yeah. uh, exactly exploring exploring that option and whether it was actually going to happen or not. It was I don't know, and I guess I'll never know now because I think I'm getting a bit too old to go back to med school. But uh, especially with four children and uh, living in a in a different country, but uh, no, it was interesting to uh, look into it anyway. For sure. So are you a British citizen now? Is that how it works when you say you're permanent? Or do you mean you're just um, not quite moving settled, back yet? I've got settled status. I mean, uh, okay. uh, my parents have finished. So obviously I had EU um, connections before um, Brexit. So now I'm, I've got settled status. So I'm, I'm allowed to stay here permanently and there's no problems with me working and staying here. Uh, but no, I, I have Australian, uh, obviously, citizenship and Finnish citizenship and settled oh, status. Wow. So I'm not quite sure 
yeah, can you have three passports? <laughs> I don't know. I, don't know. I have no idea how it all works. That's that's mad. So, wow, what a heritage you've got. Why did your parents end up going to Australia from Finland? Oh, I guess they just thought saw it as an adventure and they were uh, economic migrants. So they were actually paid to go out, can you believe, in the 60s? Oh, wow. Now it's so difficult to get in Australia, but they were on a program where if they stayed for two years, they didn't um, have to pay any that money back with, which they were given to move out to Australia. So my dad was an engineer. My mum was a nurse, a phlebotomist. Uh, so they came out thinking, oh, they'll just stay for two years and uh, uh, travel around Australia and work, uh, and they're still there. Wow. Yeah. That's and I'm over here now. Yeah, it's it's a long, long way from home, and I really miss them terribly. It's really, really yeah. difficult, especially because their only grandchildren are here, but we're hoping to go home at Easter time and see them finally because the borders have opened up in Western Australia so I can go home yeah. finally and see them. That must great. be You must have family all over the place then because they obviously must have left family in the Finland as well. And so they've yeah. been through all this. Yeah, all their families in Finland and Sweden. And my sister lives here as well. So Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, my sister's in London. She's a lawyer and she's been here even longer than me. So both my parents' offspring, their children are here and they're there. And it's oh, it's ironic in a way because they moved the other side of the world to explore and great, create new opportunities. And now me and my sister have done that. But it just, it's hard. It's, yeah. yeah. It's something in your genes. <laughs> I think so. And I think Australians in general just really love travelling and exploring because we're so isolated in Australia. We're so far away. And when you do get the opportunity to travel, it opens up so much of the world for obvious reasons. But because in Australia, it's such a huge country, but it feels like it's so separate from the rest of the world in so many ways. So once That's you do so start travelling... And you open yourself up and you see, wow, there's so much more out there. And Australia has so much to offer and I miss it so much. Yeah. Uh, but there's lots lots going on everywhere in the world and uh, it's exciting to be part of it yeah. and have, have those chances. It's interesting to hear you say that you feel isolated in Australia because, like you say, I mean, it's such a massive country. You can't really even get your head around it. I mean, I don't even know how many Englands can fit in that country, but far too many. Um, <laughs> I know, and it's vast. It's a huge land and amazing land. Uh, but this, I love it. It'll always be home for me, and I love it yeah. more than anything. Uh, but there's still, you know, other places to see, and yes. it's just broadens your horizons and makes you uh, appreciate so much more as well. And I think I appreciate home even more now when now that I've been away from it. Do you think your parents might move here? I don't think so. They're so settled now and, and uh, it'll be a big thing for them to move, you know, the elderly and, and uh, everything they know is there now. And it's a bit strange because they see themselves as Australians but also Finns, but they not still don't feel completely part of either country it's really strange but now I find myself in that situation so I'm yeah. Australian and I always be strange but now I live here and I feel torn between the two countries if you see what I mean so it's it's strange how I've ended up in the same situation now as my parents <laughs> yeah no one of my friends came over here from um Greece and then she lived here for longer than she lived in Greece and then now she's gone back to Greece and it's so you know, uh, you're having those conversations are so interesting and I can see the conflict hugely. Yeah, it's definitely conflict. Yeah, a lot of emotional ties and pulls. And 
Um, there's obviously economic reasons. And also you've got to think about when you're in a, a relationship, your partner, and yeah. now my children are settled in school here. And uh, after a huge period of adjustment, because um, obviously the oldest ones had to settle into new schools and the little ones have only known this place. Yeah. Uh, they were very, very small when we moved. So, yeah, and, and as a mother, we always put other people's needs first and, and also economically you need to look at monetary reasons as well as to where you're going to stay and where you're going to work. Uh, for my partner, his work, uh, it's better for him to be here. Yeah. No, that's cool. And I can work in lots of places, so I'm lucky. Not everyone can do that. No, no, no. It's um, That's really fascinating. So what pets have you got? We have two dogs. We have a golden retriever called Ricky, bless her. She's uh, geriatric now, absolutely gorgeous old golden girl. She's 13. And we have Fuzzy, who's a cockapoo. Uh, well, he was given to me well, as a rescue, like multi-poo rescue, but I think he's more cockapoo. Uh, and he's 10. And we have two cats, uh, Aussie and Sydney. And uh, my daughter would love a pony, but no, <laughs> I'm not going down that road because um, I wouldn't. <laughs> I've, it's enough with four pets, four four kids, and horses seem to be. I don't do equine medicine. I mean, obviously, we learned about I learned about horses at, at university, but I never I never practiced it uh, equine medicine, and I feel like I've forgotten everything. And my daughter does riding lessons, and that's enough. I see how expensive it is doing that. I'm, <laughs> I can't afford a pony. <laughs> No, exactly. They are, no, yes, they are. You have to just look after the pony. And it sounds like you've got a ridiculously busy household anyway. So, um, yes, you definitely sound like you don't need a horse to add to that. I mean, honestly, all the horse owners I know, they always have to be up at the crack of sparrows. I know. And in this weather, it's too cold. I'm not getting up at five o'clock in the morning to muck out in the freezing cold and the rain and the, the slop. Exactly. Uh, until she's old enough to do that herself then she can do it but I know exactly. I'll be doing it. it I'll be the one doing it exactly I worked in a racing yard for a bit and that was bad enough and at least I could hand it back when I wasn't in <laughs> was like, exactly and yeah. all my nurse friends who have got horses and ponies they are always getting into strife and injuring themselves and doing daft things and <laughs> like I don't need that <laughs> I love horses. I love ponies. I love watching my daughter ride. She gets, and I used to do the same thing as a child, but no, I, I, I have my limits. <laughs> That's fair enough. So back on your veterinary, what what of veterinary still grosses you out? What really turns your stomach? I'm, I'm really, I've got a really strong stomach. Uh, nothing really phases me with smells or sights, but I, I have <laughs> a bit of an embarrassing thing to admit that I'm, I've got a bird phobia nice I can't I don't like touching birds now but the thing is I used to breed birds when I was a child so I, I'm not quite sure what's happened but I, I I'm quite scared of birds now like if they come flying at me or uh, I got bitten really badly by a African massive African gray, gray parrot and it's it, quite bad yeah it got me right in that meaty part of the hand and it didn't let go and the owner was just laughing and laughing and I was Ouch. in agony and the bird was looking at me and he was I could tell the bird was laughing at me as well and <laughs> <laughs> ever since then and I had another incident where uh I had to put down this poor uh Australian bush turkey uh and once we euthanized it, all it's the lice, there's what lice came, just hundreds of them came jumping off and went all over me. And oh. ever since then, I've just been a bit funny about this. Well, I'm not going to lie. That sounds absolutely awful. I think that would freak me out as well. Really? Yeah. That's horrible. 
Oh, that sounds worse than maggots. Oh, yeah, maggots okay. don't phase me at all, but yeah. No, so I mean, I but ugh, lice things jumping off like. Oh, I know, yeah. but everyone used to te everyone teases me about it because it's you know as a vet you're supposed to be able to deal with all species, and I will I will do it if I have to, but if I can avoid avoid it, I will. I'll try and run and hide in the toilet when a bird comes. In I I can bed. see why people would laugh at you. To be perfectly honest, there's go. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, you've got like a spider thing. We wouldn't laugh at someone with spiders, but on the flip side, you're a vet, <laughs> so you know birds are fairly frequent, more like more than spiders. Although on the flip side, a spider's going to be in the corner of the room. You kind of back around the room. I oh, know. Everyone always calls me to get the spiders when <laughs> I'm not bothered by spiders, but I don't know what it is. It's I probably should learn to deal with it, but uh, uh, avoidance is the key at the moment. <laughs> I like looking at them from a distance. I just don't like touching them. To be honest, that's why I'm always glad I asked the question because, um, I mean, how how unexpected was that as a reply? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hard as nails, but don't give me a fluffy bird. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty, pretty shocking. So if... You know, money and time was no object. What would your dream achievement be? Oh, well, I guess I probably would have liked to have seen how um, Korean medicine would have gone, uh, I suppose. Uh, but my, I mean, I would have always, I always wanted to be in a famous equestrian, like a cross-country rider, um, that kind of thing. I don't, even though oh, I was wow. never a great horse rider, and I was never even that confident around horses, I just always fantasized about that how funny <laughs> so now i'm living my life through my daughter when she has her riding lessons <laughs> oh i see right oh bless that's so complicated sorry i'm just thinking about the fact that i'm not owning a horse but i would love to see one day my child to be an amazing equestrian rider just because that's why i would do, but you can't own a horse <laughs> exactly <laughs> but i'm understanding i'd like her to be involved with horses but just not like at a stables where yeah 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 someone else can help <laughs> totally get it and this, is, this is why the money has to be no object and the time has to be no object. oh yeah so and that's not going to happen so you'd it's have a, a groom you'd have a groom to look after it so yeah. yeah I totally get actually I think I even saw a documentary once at Eton obviously ridiculous school um that and I think that probably is the case for multiple boarding schools I suspect but where these children have their ponies they can actually bring them to school with them and they have grooms and stuff that actually look after them because wow. they, and then they can you know when it's after school or whatever they can go and ride their horse and uh I know that's how you need to do horse ownership isn't it <laughs> yeah you need to be loaded <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to be able to look after them all the time, don't you? But it's just they're very time consuming. So, yeah. but that's yeah, that's lovely. So, have you um? So, did you do eventing yourself then, or did you you just watch it on TV and just? I just did casual riding on the weekends and lessons, and I never ever got even competitive with it. But it was just this wild fantasy of mine, and maybe it's because I just knew it was never going to happen, um, and it was always going to be this fantastic dream of mine. All these books, you know, as a girl, um, Jackie and her ponies, and all these English-based books. Where and now I'm living that life in the countryside, but I don't, I don't have the horse, and I'm almost too terrified to get one now. <laughs> That's fair enough. It's fair enough. No, you've got a million dogs and kids and everything else, so you know that's absolutely fine. But that's nice. No, that's a lovely. That's a lovely dream. So if you could um, have a Facebook live with anybody, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, gosh, I would have loved to have met, um, well, James Herriot. I mean, that's his pen name, but James Alf White, the original 
uh, author of, of those books and then which led on to the series of the TV series. Uh, I think he had a lot of stories that he probably didn't tell in those in those books. Oh, I love sure. those. Yeah. And just to have, yeah, a real one-on-one -on -one with him, just, you know, in that different time. I mean, it was such a, it was almost romanticised, you know, it was like a really simple uh, period and, and I think that's um, shown through through the books and the TV series and the most recent TV series, which I've loved. I was really reluctant to watch it, thinking it would ruin my perception of what I grew up with and what I adored and and uh, ultimately helped lead me to become a vet. I, I, I loved all those books and the TV series, but I've really enjoyed the, the new series and I think it would be fantastic to have had the opportunity to talk to him uh, and really get to the heart of, of what it was really like. Because I think sometimes, obviously, he's put a different perspective on it. And as we all do sometimes, you know, uh, but I think there were probably some nitty-gritty stories that never never made it to the books, which would have been really interesting to hear about. I'm sure. I, mean, I must admit, like you, I didn't ever watch the second series. But, I mean, he inspired a whole generation of veterinary people, didn't he? And there's yeah. no choice about it. And, you know, I romanticized yes sort of but veterinary was more simple back then it totally was like there's no two ways about it it was very different to what it is now no, absolutely so, Donna I mean you just didn't have the, they didn't have the choices uh, like oh. we do now I mean there's just so much choice sometimes in, and sometimes it makes it more complicated for sure in some ways so uh, I think um they had it really tough in a lot of ways but in some ways it was probably easier and the expectations were were less and yeah the pressure sure. the pressure maybe was less as well yeah. And he would have been the literally the only vet in the village by a long way. So or miles and miles around. So, um, you know, very respected and very loved individual. So. Um, but yeah. And I think from the books, it was always very uh, sought after man romantically. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Um, but yeah, I do remember. I do remember that series a lot. And of course, I got given a zillion of those books as well, because uh, that's what people did. She watched to be a vet. Have all those books. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's that's lovely. What that well, great person to talk to for sure. So, can you tell us something that people wouldn't know about you? Um, I guess most a lot of people wouldn't know that I've got this Finnish background and Nordic background. And then when I tell them, they say, "Oh, yes, you do look Scandinavian or Nordic." Uh, so that's probably the one. And, and then I can sp I can speak Finnish as as well. Uh, wow. so raised with with that language and obviously then when I went to school I remember trying to not shun it but I wanted to fit in so so much with the other Australian kids that I, I I said to my parents I'm not speaking Finnish to you anymore so they spoke to me in Finnish and I could understand it but I always spoke English back to them and I think they were concerned that I wouldn't pick up the English language as well so they didn't push it uh, which is a shame because then it, for many years i I lost that real fluency, um, and then I've managed to pick up upon a lot, a lot by going to a Finnish school and obviously visiting family uh, in in Finland and being immersed in it. Uh, but I really, it's all my subconscious, uh, but it's come out again over time, and I'm, I'm really proud of that that my background and that heritage. Yeah, I'm sure. So you should be. That's amazing. But I can uh, I can always understand that sort of conflict. I'm sure that, that those things are hard when you're a kid, aren't you? You don't want to be. <laughs> you don't want to stand out. Yeah, but that's really good. You've got that connection back again now. That's really lovely. I think, yeah, yeah to be bilingual. Cool. I mean, it's, it's such a massive skill. 
um, and, yes. and and it's something yeah shouldn't take take for granted. So uh, and I know they regret not pushing it more when I was a child, but it, you know it's always there. Like I said, in your subconscious, and you just need to tap into that. Do you teach your children Finnish? No, no, no. Which is, I haven't done. I haven't continued it with my with my children, which I regret. Uh, but um, I just yeah I. Things just it's hard if you yeah. speak it. No, well. no, he's American. <laughs> Gosh, you only have gone for <laughs> a lot of cultures. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, that I mean, it's really hard because you you can then not converse and have your kids listening to the conversation each way. Then that's really tough. So exactly. yeah, I don't think that's yeah. So yeah, it's just been lost, which is a real shame. But that's where my connection comes in with obviously my parents and then baking. We cook a lot of Finnish. So I try and obviously my connection with nature, that's a real finished thing. So I always try to keep that going as well. That's lovely. So what's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done coming to the UK? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it probably was when I was in the UK, though. When I first came here, I, I put my name down on a list of, of vets uh, so that we could go and become part of a, a volunteer group to be in a part of a spay clinic. You know, you've probably heard of these things where you go, uh, usually they're abroad, uh, Spain and such places. Uh, so I put my name down. I can't remember where I registered it. Uh, maybe when I registered with the Royal College when I first came here, I can't remember how I got on board with it, but I put my name down on this list. And then a few months later, um, I got this call saying, can you get on a flight tonight to Benidorm? I remember I was walking along London Bridge and I got this call and, I, and, I, and it was from this spay charity spay clinic. And I said, oh, okay, because I just on a three-month stint and I, then I was due to have a break and I was going to do some travelling. And I thought, well, okay, great, perfect opportunity. I'll just go to Benidorm and do this. And off I went that night on this flight and I met the most amazing group of people and we <laughs> sterilised cats in someone's apartment in Benidorm on the beach um, for three days in a row and then flew home again and we used to we used to go after um our our hospital or hospital uh surgeries we'd go to the beach and we'd go out for dinner and then we'd go and catch more stray cats to sterilize they're all stray cats yeah to steril, um, sterilize again but it was all set up by a, a veterinary charity but it was all done in someone's apartment randomly but anyway that's how it was back in 2000. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That is, and things are different across the world, aren't they? And uh, you know, it's uh, so doing it in someone's apartment isn't actually necessarily that weird. It just seems weird, doesn't it? So that's the way they did it there, and that's how the charity worked. And they're really kind-hearted, lovely, giving people, and they had a great setup when we were in there. It was just, it just different. That's how you learn to adapt and just get on with different um, surroundings as well, and just get on with the job and. Uh, all the people that we worked with were just fantastic and fun and friendly and we all supported each other and we just randomly met at the airport that night when we all flew in from different places but we all just cracked on and got the job done and we just had a ball at the same time and those were some of the best days funniest days and most satisfying days because we helped so many cats and we met so many different people and and made friendships for life to be honest we're still in contact with some of those people from that trip 
Oh, lovely. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's a really yeah. lovely story. Well, well done you. It's a lovely thing to do as well because those cats need it. And so well, uh, around the world, so many yeah, animals in need and this charity, uh, they were British based but yeah. um, and raised all their funds in, in the UK and then um, went across there and helped all the, the cats over there, which is yeah. a fantastic service. For sure. So tell us a bit more about um, First Vet. So you're you're now working for First Vet now, which is teleconsult. Telemedicine. Yes. That's right. So it's a it's a really novel concept, but it's actually really effective. Uh, I think with with COVID, it's really uh, opened up different avenues and platforms for medicine, not only with people, because obviously. GPs and hospitals are using this service too, but with veterinary medicine, because so many vets were under pressure, couldn't uh, keep up with demand, and there was such a huge uh, increase in pet ownership and not enough vets and vet nurses to supply that uh, demand. Um, so telemedicine has really opened up doors in that respect, and a lot of people were struggling to get into their vets, couldn't get appointments uh in the time frame that they wanted. So telemedicine has really enabled to uh, the veterinary profession to reach out to more people and to offer support in, in another way. And it actually is really effective. I mean, at first, I, I think people might be a bit sceptical about it, but uh, we can see the animal and we can talk directly to the client or the owner. And it, it basically is a triage service. So we can determine what definitely needs to go to the vet and what can wait for instance, say for the next day. So I do a lot of night shifts. So uh, it enables us to determine what really needs to go in now, and and what can be what what can be sat on for a few hours until their vet opens again. Yeah, now I mean that's a very very good and useful service. I mean I, I know when I used to work at um, as an emergency nurse myself, the number of calls you would get that was it's actually quite hard because you're trying to deal with your patients whilst taking a call, and actually you're thinking. About five minutes ago, I already decided you're actually okay, but I can't get that across to you and I really need to deal with my patients. And it, it, it's really hard. You're trying to sort of do everything like this, um, you know, and um, so, yeah, it, it takes away that problem for sure because you can now concentrate entirely 100% and just listen to that client, which is really nice because that's what you need to do. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's just, right, Doris. I think it's taking the pressure off general practices because a lot of them are getting swamped and they just couldn't, couldn't cope um, so it takes the pressure off them and it gives owners an outlet because they're worried and stressed yeah, about their pets and happens. they need exactly so they want to reach out to somebody and they just want to know if, if things are going to be okay and that's where we can come in and just give them that reassurance or obviously that everything is going to be okay until you can get in to see your vet or if it's something really dire and uh, in a serious condition then yes you need to go now and then we uh get in contact with their vet or out of hours provider and we then communicate with them and just make that connection a bit less stressful for everyone involved so it's just a nice oh, transition nice yeah hmm. but I was gonna say that's really nice so if they've spoken to you and then you say no you do need to go to vets now or whatever then you make that call for them so they can just get in the car and bust a move straight to where they need to go. Well, we do ask them to obviously call themselves as well to make an actual appointment oh. time uh, because obviously they're so busy as well. So we don't want everyone turning up at the same time. So we ask them to call but it's, and make that appointment time that suits them and also their out-of-hours provider or their vet if they do their own out-of-hours. But we also then can speak to the vet directly 
and just give them the heads up about what's mm -hmm. going on. And then we can send them the medical journal that we've made. We email it to them. Uh, but certainly if it's something really serious, I always reach out to them and make that direct call so that uh, I think it's just so, so much nicer for vets and nurses to be able to speak to someone directly. Um, oh, yeah. And then you can just get the ideas across so much more um, succinctly and get to the bottom of the problem straight away rather than sifting through a whole medical journal. Um, it just yeah. makes it nicer for everyone involved and less stressful and straight to the point. And I think in, when you're working in emergency medicine, you just want Need it quick. that simple approach. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really, it's really good. It's really, it is nice to know those things are out there now. And I know they're getting more and more popular and you hear, um, you hear the insurance companies promoting it and all that sort of thing as well. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's good. And it's good to see the real person at the end of the phone as well. So um, yeah, exactly. Really nice. So I think you can always obviously speak to someone on the phone. And but it's having that face to face contact, I think, a lot of people find uh, comforting. And also we can see the animal. And I think as, as an experience vet, you know very quickly what needs to go to the vet now and what can wait. And you, you, you establish that quite uh, fast, uh, but the, then it's a matter of then referring that patient if it's, if it's an actual emergency. But if it's not, then we can make a medical plan uh, or cons uh, the conservative plan and just get that plan in place. And that yeah. gives um, owners a... Uh, a lot of comfort and, and and reassurance, and I think that especially at night time when their vets are not open, it's a difference. And I think at night time people worry more because you don't have those uh, avenues of connection. And and for us to be there, I, I think people appreciate it. Oh, totally, definitely. Night time becomes very scary. It is the time. It's you like think, when oh, you're a parent with your child. It's, yes. Things always happen at at night, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the next question I always like to ask my vets is, what do you love about physio? Oh, I love hydrotherapy. That's my favourite. Uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, go for it. Go for it. I no, I just, we just want to talk about the holistic side of it as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a great way for owners to get involved in the treatment of their pet as well. And I think owners want to be involved. And I think that's what's really special about physio because the, the, most of the time, they can be there with with their pet as well, and they want yeah. to be there and to share to share that and see what's going on. And um, certainly, there's huge advances being made, like in every avenue of veterinary medicine. And uh, we're, we're, that's we're following the same route as human medicine now, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, so the same uh, opportunities and treatments are available now for our our animals, which is which is what should be what it should be like. And I think owners are, are really um, thankful for that. And and now with uh, insurance, a lot of people having their insurance on board, they they they've got access to it, uh, which is fantastic. No, absolutely, that's fantastic. So yes, thank you very much for that. Most appreciated. So back to the questions about you. So what was what's your weirdest dream you've ever had? Uh, but I always have these same dreams where I'm back at uh, high school doing my final exams I, and, you know, I haven't prepared for the exam. I mean, it's the same thing that because it's terrible. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, other dreams, I mean, yeah, 
I wake up in, in, in a sweat sometimes and in a panic, you know, with some of my dreams. Um, but other times, you know, I wake up and think, oh, gosh, wish I could continue that dream. But no, kids have woken me up or the dogs are barking or the cats are meowing in my face wanting breakfast. But uh, but no, sadly, I seem to have a lot of stressful dreams <laughs> rather oh, than more happy ones. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that's what happens when you get to motherhood, isn't it? Is that age. I think it's age. <laughs> Yeah, too many things, too many life issues. I thought you were going to say something about all your birds. <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of nightmares about those sorts of things. But, uh, no, I just have these same recurrent dreams. But um, I probably should look into that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does sound like it. It does sound very stressful. <laughs> um, so what's the what's the coolest animal you've ever treated? Oh, well, back in Oz, I saw loads of kangaroos and even snakes. Um, they never phased me. Um, it was just the birds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of reptiles, lizards. Uh, it was all pretty standard um, back in Oz. Uh, but over and, and but they were wild wildlife. Um, yeah. And over here, um, they're they're pets, uh, which I, I I find sometimes hard to to understand how how they're pets because for me they should be should be should be in nature but uh I can well understand that I can well understand yeah. that yeah no that's fair enough do you find that like over here if you get presented with a deer that's as weird to you as a, as a kangaroo would be to us if that makes sense uh no well I guess size wise uh it doesn't phase me no uh it's essentially the same the same principles no, I, that, that hasn't worried me. And, and unfortunately, I have come across uh, along roads and things, unfortunately, with deer being struck and, and having to help. So, no, that, that, that hasn't worried me. And I've been able to deal with that without any issues. Uh, it, it's more the small, the small, fairy, small fairy ones, which I've struggled with more, to be honest. That's fair enough. Well, they're a lot more delicate, aren't they? You end up thinking, oh, God, I don't know. How to, how to deal with this tiny thing. <laughs> oh, that's so, yeah. right. I mean, it's like dealing with a tiny, tiny baby, newborn almost, you know, it's sure. uh, so, so fragile. Yes, definitely. So what's your most memorable part of being a vet? Oh, gosh. Well, to be honest, it's quite sad, actually. My most memorable moment was uh, when I had to, uh, helped a family um, say goodbye to their, to their beloved dog um, that was actually their son's dog who had passed from a terminal uh, tumour, a teenage boy, his, their son's dog, um, and then was time for their son's dog to, after they'd lost their son in tragic circumstances, uh, it was time for, for them to say goodbye to their son's dog, their family dog, and uh, making sure that that he, he passed peacefully uh, and just surrounded by love and in a, a beautiful, calm environment. And luckily he... He went peacefully, and but that moment where where the parents they shook my hands and they looked me in the eye and thanked me, and they were so grateful for for what I'd done for them when they had been through so much pain, and and to see them lose another part of their son really when they said yeah. goodbye to, to that that beautiful dog. Um, it's always stayed with me uh, because people often say to me. It must be really hard to put pets down, and and it is. And sometimes it's it's a relief when animal an animal is really suffering and and in pain. And that that dog was, and I can imagine their poor son would have been in the same situation. And 
they couldn't do anything for him at that moment, but they could do that for their dog. And that was their son's dog that they loved so much. And it was a really pivotal moment for me where euthanasia took on a different, uh, well, it just, just changed me in terms of how I viewed euthanasia and enabled me to think that it was a real, it was a gift almost that we can give people and their families when they're at a really difficult time in their life and they're reaching out to us for help and we can help them in a way that's obviously going to cause a lot of distress and pain, but we can do it in a in a kind and calm and almost beautiful way. Um, sure. And, and uh, it's an honour. It was an honour for me that day. Yeah. No, totally true. And it's really, I mean, it's really humbling that you, you know, you speak like that. It's really lovely to hear because, you know, everybody wants to hear that, that the vet cares that much and um and and you obviously do which is wonderful and you're absolutely right I always say and I know lots of people do it's the final gift that you can give and that is so so true it's uh, yeah it's a very very hard thing to go through and, and especially when you've got a family who has more personal experiences of it from that point of view as well it's um it, it is very difficult it's um yeah you don't get more closer to home hitting than that do you so uh I'm not mm. surprised that stayed with you and I don't think that'll ever leave you but what you do have from that as well is knowing what an impact you made that day and that's huge isn't it so um what a great thing to also have with such a sad memory so I mean, it's a real conflicted memory isn't it that one absolutely so, it, really difficult one of the most difficult days of my life as a vet but uh, one of the most memorable in in yeah. different ways, but yeah. it, yeah, okay, it well done. really struck me in so many ways. But just the way that they both shook my hand at the end of that and looked yeah. me in the eye, and I I get chills. Just I can feel it still. Yeah. And that was many many years ago. Uh, well, I, I feel proud. To, I felt proud to be a vet that day. Good, you did an amazing thing. So well done, and you should feel proud. Well done. Thank you. So. In terms of these proud moments, I also would like you to tell everybody what is your top tip for dealing with pain? I think the top tip is to try to recognise it early uh, and then get onto it. Uh, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, my dog's just getting old and stiff and uh, he's limping, but he's not in pain. Well, I, I think I think he, he or she is in pain um, and just be in tune with your animal and I think most owners are um, sometimes they might find it hard to accept that the animal might be in pain I think deep down I think if they trust their gut instinct they they probably know uh, and then to act on that and don't 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 hold back don't feel ashamed don't be embarrassed uh, because we're here to help and the sooner you can get onto it the better the outcome and um, everyone will be happy. Your pet will be happier and you'll be happier because you won't be so stressed and worried. And and you'll see a different side when your pet's not in pain. Uh, you'll see them flourish again. And there's no greater joy than seeing that transformation because sometimes it, it's a simple thing and it can make a huge difference. So, Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah that's really uh, is really great advice. And um, because you're right, that underlying niggle that your dog might be, or your cat might be, I, mm. that eats away at you way more than you realise. Um, and there's some great studies out there as well. There's one um, that I saw uh, a couple of months ago, and it was absolutely brilliant. And it was um, comparing pain scales with humans versus animals. And they said that basically, um, if you did a, if you went to the NHS and they asked you, they give you smiley faces, one to ten, and you would be, or your your dog's pain would be a, a six out of ten when you notice. So if you went and did those pain scales, you'd probably be starting to acknowledge the sad face in the sort of maybe four, three, something like that. But you would be all the way up at a six out of ten before you even acknowledged it for the dog. And it makes sense because you can't, there's a certain level of pain where nobody can see you're in pain. You have to tell them you're in pain. It's exactly. a quite bad pain before you actually start limping around and hobbling and holding your face or anything like that. So it made a lot of sense. I thought that was really clever. And then the other um, thing that I've been noticing on a, just a personal, um, for me, uh, point of view, I always get my clients to do load scores now, which are Liverpool osteoarthritis uh, pain scores. Um, and so when they first come to me, I get them to send me this form back and it turns their pain into a number. And um, what I have found is that most people, it's an average of about 14 and 15 when they come for their first session, which actually I'm quite proud of my clients for that because that's actually in the mo in the moderate zone. So you've got mm. mild, moderate, severe and extreme. So I actually think that's not too bad. I'm actually thinking that's amazing. But obviously we would rather they were anything below 15 rather than in that sort of teen score. Um, but I, I do also want to say that it, you're capable of acknowledging. So, you know, just yeah. definitely click um, because it's brilliant. And then um, obviously I do follow up pain scores and then their numbers come down and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, that's satisfying, so, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. It's good. So, um, yeah. So thank you for that. That was a great piece of advice. Be aware of your pain, acknowledge it and just go and talk to the vet and find out what you can do. Because in the early stages, there's a lot you can do, which is easy intervention at that stage. Exactly. Communication is key, like with everything, I think. So just reach out for help if, if you need it. And because there's always going to be someone that you can talk to about any problems that you have. For sure. So Paula has just jumped on and she's just said, Donna, how stoic is Lily? I always know when she's not right. But when she goes to the vet and she shows no oh. pain, even when they manipulate her, her the, the manipulate a little bit. Yeah. So, yes, I, I must admit, you, you know, some dogs are way harder to read than others. Lily is like a bionic dog who's had every single leg operated on and she's unbelievable. I mean, oh, her elbows both smashed both amazing like she's literally incredible she had both knees she's incredible so she is that that dog um but like you say paula what we have got to acknowledge here is that you as an owner know when she's not right and you know and us as veterinary professionals have to be able to listen to the owner and say Absolutely. okay i accept what you've said and i believe you exactly because no one knows an animal better than its owner so sure. we have Owners have to trust us and we have to trust them. Yes. So when an owner tells me there's something wrong, well, I'm going to listen because especially when I've never met that pet, before, I don't I've, I don't know that animal. Um, but so we need to have that trust and bond with the owner and listen. And it's all about communication. And I think that goes a long, long way. And I remember when my own daughter, um, she had a intracranial bleed 
when she was a baby, only eight weeks old, um, she had multiple MRIs, CT scans, everything. And then for her follow-up, I remember going to the neurospecialist, uh, the neurosurgeon, and, and he said, are you worried? And, and I said, I was. And he said, well, you know what? I, I trust you as a mother. You know that baby. You know your child. So we'll do some further tests. And, and I'll never forget that moment. And it made me um, reinforce my own beliefs in veterinary medicine because I, have, I trust my, my owners. And um, it was really refreshing to hear that from a doctor to say, I, I believe you. I, I don't think you're going crazy. I don't think you're a nutter. I, I, <laughs> I believe what you're saying. And, and for him to say that was, um, yeah, changing, life-changing for me. And it really reinforced that what I was doing with my own patients and my own clients was right. Yeah, no, completely. And this is also going to back you up completely. It took three months to convince the vet when Lily broke her elbow and I had to go to another vet and it was for so stressful. I know, poor you, Paula. But you found the other vet and it, that, that was a lesson learned for everybody, I'm sure. And um, and then you had the most amazing vet doing the fixing of those elbows, which was wonderful. Anyway, we have had Rita for an hour now, so we are going to say goodbye to her. Thank you so much, everybody, for watching. Thank you, everybody, for your, well, thank you, Paula, for your comments. And um, I will see you again in a couple of weeks for our next cup of tea with the vet. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Donna. Thank you for listening to Cup of Tea with the Vet. If you want to hear it live and get involved, join us on our Facebook or YouTube channel, Animal Physiotherapy Limited. And if you can leave a review, please do. They really help and I read every single one. Thanks for listening.